I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 202. And today in the show, we're exploring the idea of a true backcountry whitetail hunt in the boundary waters of northern Minnesota. And we're going to be joined here by several members of Sportsman for the Boundary Waters to discuss this wilderness, how to pull off a hunt here, and why this area is currently at risk. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today in the show we are covering a very different kind of topic than usual. We are talking about backcountry whitetail hunting. And in last week's podcast, uh, you might remember I'd hinted to the fact that this coming fall, I'm planning a canoe-in backcountry whitetail hunt into this wilderness. So today I wanted to dive much, much deeper into that topic. And you know, so much of the whitetail hunting that we talk about on this podcast is focused on on just the usual everyday ag field and woodlot type landscape that so many of us here across the country deer hunt in on an annual basis. And that's that's awesome. I get a kick out of it. I love it. But I've also been personally interested in, in kind of getting more intrigued by the idea of venturing off to some more unique places to chase my favorite game species. You know, I really want to try to find ways to stretch myself as a deer hunter to experience new ways of hunting, explore new places. And this idea of the boundary waters, it has been top of my list when it comes to this kind of idea. So very quickly, for those not familiar, the boundary water canoe area wilderness is just a vast primitive wilderness area in northern Minnesota. We're talking an area, I believe it's it's over 1 million acres in size, and it's composed of miles and miles and miles of lakes and rivers and huge forests and rocky cliffs and escarpments and just a really rugged and impressive landscape. And the only way to get around in it, at least during the spring, summer, and fall, is to hike or canoe. So my plan is to load all of my gear for a week of whitetail hunting and camping in a canoe and paddling portage deep into this wilderness until I find some deer, hopefully. And I think it's just going to be a really challenging, really interesting, really fun trip. But, you know, what originally brought this area, the Boundary Waters, to my attention a few years ago was the fact that not only is it special, but it's also a place facing increased risk. Uh, from everything I've read and heard and seen, this is one of the nation's most impressive and precious wild places, but it's it's in some serious danger here. So 
I've been doing more and more research on what's going on here. And as I've done that, I've gotten more interested in both kind of finding a way to see it for myself and then trying to, you know, lend a hand if I can at all to make sure this place is around and in, in a, you know, a healthy condition so that maybe some of you folks can see it someday. Maybe so my son can see it someday. And that's kind of how this trip idea and this podcast idea finally all came together. So here in a moment, I'm going to be getting three more guys on the line with me. Dan, Dan can't join us today, but we will have three guests. They are all very familiar with the Boundary Waters, and we're going to be talking about we're going to be talking about the wilderness in general. We're going to be talking about what it's like to deer hunt there, and then finally, we're also going to talk a little bit about what's going on there, what these dangers are that the Boundary Waters are facing. So joining us here in a second is Lucas Leaf, the National Sporting Director for Sportsmen for the Boundary Waters, Matt Norton, the Policy Director for Sportsmen for the Boundary Waters, and another avid hunter and angler from the area, Daryl Spencer. So I think regardless of you know whether or not you ever plan on hunting or fishing or exploring the Boundary Waters yourself, I think this is a chat that everyone and anyone can enjoy and learn something from. We, we just cover some some very interesting things, some very different ways of deer hunting. But I do think that, you know, regardless, this is the kind of place, this is the kind of adventure that I think, if nothing else, is fun to hear about and then daydream about in the future. I know I certainly have been doing a lot of daydreaming about this place too. So, with all that said, let's pause here for a moment for our Sitka story of the day, and then we're going to dive right into it. For this week's Sitka story, we're joined by Seth Healy, who tells us about a recent goose hunt that meant a little more. Well, it was uh, early January, and uh, my buddy Andy, his, uh, his best friend had actually unexpectedly passed away. And, um, you know, he was, they were both big goose hunters and, um, there was three of them that really goose hunted together. I'm not a big waterfowl guy. Um, so we, we decided to go out, uh, the very last day of season and, you know, they haven't, they hadn't hunted much since he had passed away. Um, so we go out the last day of season and the night before he had seen a, a goose with a white head and that was the one that Andy had wanted to shoot the most. And so, I mean, it's not even two minutes after shooting time and three geese come in and Skylar and I had completely missed the first one and ended up shooting the last two. Well, Andy, which was, uh, the guy's best friend that had passed away, um, had shot that white headed goose and with his gun and his decoys. And it was just kind of like, you know, the, the, the guy that passed away, it almost sent that bird directly to Andy. I mean, it was just, uh, an unforgettable moment and definitely an emotional hunt for, you know, both of those guys that were using his stuff. On Seth's hunt, he was wearing Sitka's Dakota system. If you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit SitkaGear.com. All right. With me now on the line, We've got a, a whole slate of folks with us again today. We have Lucas Leaf, Matt Norton, and Daryl Spencer. And rather than me trying to rattle off a big introduction of my own, I was hoping that you guys could maybe give us a brief kind of cliff notes as to who each of you are. Um, so maybe, Lucas, could you kick things off for us by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your involvement with the Boundary Waters? Yeah, absolutely, Mark. Um so I'm the national sporting director for Sportsmen for the Boundary Waters. Uh, you know, we work to 
protect the boundary waters for future generations currently from uh, sulfide or copper mining, but, you know, that's just a part of my background. I've been going up there since I was 13, everything from rough grouse hunts to spring open or lake trout trips. And, you know, I'm a big uh, uh, hunter and angler. I spend a lot of time up there. Um, I'm also a chef as well, so I've been doing a lot of work, uh, especially with the campaign that both uh, Matt and I work with and Darrow as well. And I'm also the current chef of uh, Modern Carnivore, which, you know, we can chat a little bit about later if it comes up. But, yeah, you know, my basic background is is basically I spend a ton of time up in the Boundary Waters. I care about it so much. It's near and dear to my heart. You know, my dad started bringing me up there when I was 13, and, you know, it's our church. So it's it's a space that's near and dear to me. And very important for the kids I plan on having and for everybody that I know and that I've introduced to it. You know, can you tell us a little bit more about modern carnivore before we move on to the rest of the guys? I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear a bit more on that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, modern carnivore was, uh, developed as a way to introduce, um, people who have not experienced hunting and angling or the idea of, uh, self-sustainability and acquiring meat through means that is hunting and fishing. So basically introducing people to uh, hunting and angling opportunities and letting them taste food, bringing them out, out on, on excursions and also doing uh, dinners and get togethers where we give them the opportunity to not only make the decision themselves, but to experience what is, kind of a long-standing tradition here in America and, you know, uh, across the world, which is acquiring our fo- our own food by means of fishing, hunting, um, growing your own food, so uh, foraging as well. So all things that I'm super into, you know, I'm big into foraging, uh, mushrooms and lots of things during the spring and throughout the summer and fall, so uh, seasonality is key. Uh, it's just a lot of fun and it's very cool to see the reaction of people when they've been introduced to something that they didn't know that was right in their backyard or that they had such an easy opportunity to go and acquire themselves. Well, yeah, that's great. I, that sounds like a great, um, opportunity to help engage people that it seems more and more our opportunity to engage with new hunters and bring new people into our community is through food. Um, so that's, Sounds like a great deal you guys got going there. I'd, I'd love to dive more into that later too. Um, but but Matt, I guess can we can we jump over to you, Matt? Can you give us a quick intro to yourself? Uh, sure. Well, um, I'm the policy director for uh, the campaign and sportsman for the Boundary Waters. Um, I uh, I love paddling. Um, I love hunting. I love fishing. Wilderness areas are important to me, and being able to get uh, a really high quality outdoor experience is important to me. And, um, I'm, uh, you know, a big fan of the boundary waters because it's, uh, um, incredibly accessible. Uh, if you're willing to paddle, if you're willing to work the experience, uh, it's enormous. Uh, really as soon as you uh, put in on your first lake, uh, you're experiencing, experiencing the backcountry um, environment. And uh, well, I've, I've been paddling in the Boundary Waters uh, since 
I first moved here to Minnesota in 1999. Um, prior paddling trips were in um, provincial parks in Canada, uh, particularly Algonquin Provincial Park in eastern Ontario. Um, I've uh, got a biology background, and I came to hunting uh, late in life. Um, I, I did not go through the modern carnivore uh, routine, but um, uh, but I did not, you know, as many, uh, I guess, you know, higher percentages today of, of people uh, are, you know, growing up in households where the parents um, don't really hunt or fish. Um, that's less true in Minnesota, where a huge percentage of people fish and a decent percentage of people hunt. But um, so I came to... Uh, hunting and fishing out of my own interest and in particular you know that uh, opportunity to find um, high quality um, uh, experiences but also high quality um, uh, fish and uh, venison. I was just going to ask you a little bit more about what a policy director actually does for an organization like this you know what does that actually mean? Sure. Well, um, the effort to save the boundary waters from uh, the biggest threat that it's uh, uh, you know that's in front of it, which is sulfide ore copper mining, a particularly um, toxic type of mining, um, type of mining that's never been done successfully anywhere in the U.S. Uh, or anywhere in the world. Um, if success is defined as operating and closing uh, without polluting surrounding surface water and groundwater with heavy metals and um, you know, other mining contaminants. So we, we've got right now a big job interacting with federal agencies, particularly the U.S. Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management um, and the departments above them, uh, U.S. The Department of Agriculture in the case of the Forest Service and Department of Interior, uh, in the case of the Bureau of Land Management. And interacting with them typically means, um, if you're doing it in a formal fashion, uh, producing a fair amount of written information uh, that explains what science, what factual information you've got, um, and experiential information uh, you can convey to them to explain uh, just how bad uh, for how long it would be if sulfide or copper mining were allowed to uh, begin in the watershed that flows down into the boundary waters. And I, I don't know if your listeners, you know, can appreciate these are public lands. Uh, I'm, I'm hopefully just describe it a little bit so you can imagine. It, but this is a 1.1 million acre wilderness area. It's uh, under U.S. Forest Service. You know, management. There's more than 1,175 lakes larger than 10 acres. They are massively interconnected, and so you can paddle from lake to lake, or sometimes paddle to the end of a lake and portage as carry all your stuff, a canoe and and your uh, portage bags with your goods uh, from one lake into another, and just keep going. Uh, you could literally spend a year paddling in the boundary waters without. Without, uh, you know, without repeating your your track, so uh, so I write 
and I read and interact with experts and make sure we make a compelling case to our federal agencies about why this type of mining should not happen in the boundary waters. It sounds like um, important work, obviously, and uh, and obviously you seem to be one who's uh, well cut up for it. So I'm glad we got someone like you who can dig into all the minutia of uh, of the policies and the different issues and the and the science. Um, I've read a lot of the different paperwork and um, studies that you guys have cited and different things on your website, and there's a lot of detail it goes into, and I imagine a lot of that is, is of your doing. Um, so, so that's impressive, the, the level of detail you guys have gone into trying to understand what really is at stake here, what, what's going to happen, what could happen, um, and why we might want to put on the brakes a little bit when it comes to some of these things. And, and in, in a little bit, I want to dive in much more deeply into, into what exactly is being proposed, why the boundary waters are at risk, why there's been so much talk about it. Um, but, um, but, but Daryl, I guess real quick, let's hop over to you real quick to finish off our introductions. What, what's your story? I live in Duluth, Minnesota. I went to school at the university of Minnesota Duluth and, um, fell in love with the area, uh, close to the boundary waters, close to superior national forest, close to Chippewa national forest. And, uh, Loved to hunt and fish and um, and said I would never leave, and I didn't. And uh, raising two boys here in Duluth and lived to hunt and small businessman, always have been. And uh, try to have a business that allows me to hunt a lot and fish a lot. And uh, so far, it's worked out pretty well. Smart man. That's the way to, that's the way to do it. Um, so... So the reason why I originally wanted to, you know, get all of you three here together to talk with me about this is because, you know, I personally have become intrigued with the Boundary Waters over the past few years. Um, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time exploring public lands out west, and I've spent a lot of time in northern Michigan, my home state, doing a lot of things there. But I've never really spent any time in Minnesota. Um, but I think it maybe was back in 2015 I started hearing about some of these things you alluded to. Matt about these this uh, this mine proposal and leases and that kind of brought attention for me just to the, what this place is and hearing about the the paddling opportunities and the hunting opportunities and the fishing and just that wilderness experience um, and I've always had a little bit of a, a little bit of my heart has always been tied to that kind of place where you can canoe into a wild place because I as a kid I grew up going every summer to upstate New York to the Adirondack Mountains where my great uncle had a little cabin. And I just spent, you know, several weeks of summer just canoeing all over the place. And as like a 10-year-old, I felt like I was in the biggest, wildest place you could ever see. Um, obviously, there were motorboats all around me, but at times it sure felt like a pretty wild, awesome experience. And when I started looking into what the Boundary Waters you know, had to offer, I saw that same kind of opportunity to, to go deep into a wild place, a quiet place, um, and be on your own and be, you know, being a, a man-powered type adventure. And so it's always been something I've thought about. And then, you know, me personally, as the years have gone on as a deer hunter, um, I've gotten more and more interested in different types of deer hunting trips. Um, so... <clears throat> As a, as a serious whitetail guy in my everyday life, I do a lot of stuff in the farmland of the Midwest, a lot of your typical whitetail hunting, but I've been intrigued with taking my love for whitetails and going into bigger, wilder, woolier places and having a 
unique experience. And the Boundary Waters kind of jumped out to me this year as, wow, what a great opportunity to see something very different, to experience something very different than your typical whitetail hunt. And, um, you know, experience this place, learn about this place, talk about this place during a time where it needs it needs a little bit of love and care right now, it sounds like. Um, so to set that stage just a little bit more, and Matt, you kind of started with it, um, but for people that aren't familiar with the Boundary Waters, I kind of want to help paint a picture for them. And I guess I'm not, I haven't been there. So I would love you guys to paint a little bit more of a picture for me. Um, and Daryl, you just mentioned how much you like to hunt and fish and, and spend time there. Can you give us just a quick painting? How, how would you, what, what would you say is so special about the Boundary Waters? What is a, what is time spent in the Boundary Waters like? Um, kind of give us a glimpse into that kind of experience. If you- well, <clears throat> Boundary Waters is uh, a million-acre area. It extends along about um, 80 to 90 miles of the U.S. border with Canada. Um, And it makes up uh, most of the the United States side of what's really a transnational U.S. and Canada uh, lakeland wilderness area that totals up to be about two and a half million acres. The water in this area is some of the purest water on earth. Um, Extremely high quality water you can drink straight from the middle of the lake. These waters are are, um, and healthy forests. Uh, You know, there's there's no roads, um, uh, no no motors uh, on the inside of, of the boundary waters. Only a few lakes really on the um, in a couple of spots on the edges where low horsepower motors are allowed, but the, the vast majority of it, no motors. And, um, you know, you're, you're moving around through, uh, the landscape the way, uh, people moved through that landscape centuries and, and thousands of years. It is, uh, it's an incredible area. Tremendous habitat for, um, Migrating birds, um, some uh, incredible diversity of uh, of birds, great fishing, uh, just vast, vast fisheries across these, you know, uh, almost twelve hundred a good sized lake. Um, very healthy uh, because the relative fishing pressure is low. You just um, you, you couldn't you couldn't fish that area. Uh, enough to really make a, a very heavy impact on the on the fisheries and so it's healthy fisheries and um, um, you know planes are not allowed to land uh, in the wilderness area except under emergency conditions and uh, you know, float planes under emergency conditions and so if you're willing to, to work for it you can get you know you can portage uh, many lakes in and get into an area where you're unlikely to see uh, people for days. Really a great experience. I mean, Daryl, I mean, what would you, what would you add to that? You know, it, to me, it's, it's all about travel. Um, it's all about getting back to the rhythm of life and hard work. And there's no other place like it. Maybe the Adirondacks, like you were talking, but, you know, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I I went there too much. I mean, I loved it to death. I'd go six to ten trips a year. I'd constantly 
try to find a different route. I'd take groups up there. I'd take just a friend up there. I'd take solo trips with my dog. And a lot of them were testing myself to see if I could do, you know, 80, 90, 100 miles in three days. And, um, you know, traditional routes, too, that the Voyagers took. You know, I've done the border routes, which is basically the entire top of the Balmy Waters. I've done the Hunter's Island loop, which is 260 miles and uh, up into Canada and back around. Um, and, and now that I've gotten older, to be honest, I I don't like being around all the people. And so I rarely go in there unless it's, uh, you know, early spring, uh, fall to hunt and the winter. Um, and I just enjoy uh, that. That's the best way to explain it. I just had my son take his girlfriend there for the first time. And I told him, I said, I hope you feel after two to three days the rhythm of life where all you care about is work, eat, and sleep. And they came back and said they did. So it was pretty cool. It's very cool. I can definitely relate to that, that, um, that power that a kind of immersion in a wilderness has to help you just get your mind off of everything else. You're not thinking about work. You're not thinking about the chores at home or paying the bills or anything. I think anytime you can get away from that for a while, it's, um, as, as woo woo and cheesy as it might sound, it really has a powerful, almost spiritual effect. Um, at least for me. And it sounds like, it sounds like this is the kind of place that has that too. Um, Lucas, would you add anything to all this as far as what this place is all about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of on the same page as Daryl is, you know, I, I grew up going on, uh, spring lake trout trips up there. So, you know, you're, you're paddling in and, and not knowing if, if the ice is going to be off the lakes. And I've had experiences where, you know, especially with my dad that, you know, we've had to camp on, on a portage to wait for the ice to come out. And it's definitely, for me, it, it resonates as a place to go to, to release and forget about society and kind of reboot your batteries. Um, there's so many different opportunities, you know, as, as Daryl was saying, you know, you can go up for a rough grouse hunt. You can go up, you know, you're going up for a white-tailed deer hunt or you're going for that spring lake trout hunt, you know, you get in the right space in, in June and you miss people for walleye too. So, um, there's so many opportunities to go up there and experience this vast, amazing place by yourself without running into people. If you hit the right spots, I mean, it is one of the most visited wildernesses in the nation with over 150,000 people every year, but it's so huge that you have an opportunity to experience something um, that doesn't exist anywhere else here. So, um, for me, it's, it's, it's really been about not only my own experiences, but introducing it to others as well. And I can say for, by, for absolutely for a fact that every single person that I've brought up and I've introduced to this place has become hooked. Um, no pun intended, but, um, it is an amazing space. Um, I wish I was there right now. So, <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I agree. Um, what, what does this place 
What do the boundary bars actually look like, Lucas? Can you can you tell us about the terrain, the vegetation, the look and feel of it of it all? Um, it's very very different from southern Minnesota, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Matt touched on it earlier. It's 1.1 million acres of interconnected uh, lakes, streams, rivers, wetlands. You know, with countless different opportunities for you know fishing and hunting, world class opportunities, smallmouth bass lake trout, walleye, northern pike, rough grouse, whitetail. Um, you're really stepping into, stepping back into time when you go up there. And that's why it's so important that, you know, it has been protected that the way it is. You're, you're stepping into a, into a northern forest that uh, doesn't really exist anywhere else, you know, except for, you know, going up into the Quetico, which is the sister area, which is about a, million acres in Canada as well. So um, I can't express more that, you know, as much as I like to, des- to, des- to describe exactly what it is, you can't know unless you experience it for yourself. The quietness, the solitude, um, just the experience itself. It's just, it's, you can't compare it to anywhere else. Hmm. You know, I, I'd say that, I, you know, I, I'd characterize the landscape up there. It's boreal forest mixed in yeah. with some, uh, with northern bit, bits here and there of, of eastern broadleaf forest. Um, you've got rolling hills. Uh, you've got cliffs and, uh, you know, some really precipitous cliffs and very deep lakes and places. Uh, the water is, um, you know, I've already said it's clean enough to drink, but... Uh, enormous amounts, enormous amounts of interconnected um, lakes in a in a very health, healthy, forested, um, hilly and kind of cliff-strewn um, landscape. There's really, I think, Lakeland, Lake a Lakeland wilderness is really the best way to describe it, and there really yeah, isn't absolutely. any equivalent anywhere else in the U.S. In fact, it's the biggest wilderness area east of the Rockies and north of, of, uh, the Everglades. So it's, you know, for most of America, this is, this is the nearest, uh, big wilderness that they've got. I was going to say, and just to touch on what Matt was saying, um, you know, there's individual lakes untouched there that produce their own ecosystems. You know, you could go from one lake to another and the lake trout, what they're feeding on is completely different. Um, the color of the fish, you know, the ecosystem that they're living in, it's, it's an amazing thing. I mean, I've fished a lake a quarter mile from each other, and depending upon the waters that are going into each lake, um, you have a completely different experience, different taste. Uh, it's, it's just amazing. Add, I'd add to it, um, to me, Mark, it, it looks like Minnesota. And the difference is <laughs> it's the one place where there aren't motors, there's not logging, and there's very small amounts of motorized recreation. Uh, it's just a, it's the one quiet place in Minnesota, but it, it looks like a lot of other places. It looks like Spear National Forest. It looks like Chippewa National Forest without the roads, without the ATVs, and without a lot of the people. It sounds pretty special, and it sounds like, you know, what's neat about this area is that, as I think it was, I think, Matt, you mentioned that it's so 
relatively so accessible for a lot of people, you know, east of the Mississippi. A lot of people think when they think about big wilderness, they assume they have to go to Alaska or Montana or Wyoming or something like that. Um, but the boundary waters are pretty darn close to people in Wisconsin or Iowa or Nebraska or Illinois. Um, it's, it's within reach of a you know day's drive, and you can be in this vast, wild quiet, special place. And I think that's kind of cool for, for myself and my listeners. And, and the fact that a lot of us deer hunters here in the Midwest or different parts of the country, feel like we're so, so far from these bigger, wilder places, but in this case, not really. And not only that, but it's a big wild place where you can take your hunting experiences in Michigan or Illinois or Georgia, and you can apply that a little bit and chase whitetails in the boundary waters, which is what has intrigued me so much. Um, and Daryl, I saw some pictures you sent over of some, some really beautiful looking whitetail bucks that you have hunted up there. And, um, so obviously you know what you're doing. It sounds like you've been out, out there hunting quite a bit. So I gotta, I gotta ask you, what is a, what is deer hunting in the boundary waters? Like I got, I'm imagining and assuming is very different from deer hunting in most other places. Um, can you walk us through a little bit about what a hunt there is like? What's that look like? It's it's a lot different than even hunting in northern Minnesota in, in Spear National Forest or Chippewa National Forest. Uh, my wife and I have a hunting camp up by uh, Grand Rapids in the central part of the state in Chippewa National Forest. It's real remote, way back in the middle of nowhere, and actually we're lucky enough to have a a big non-motorized area next to us. So I do a lot of sneak hunting in there and, and I really like it cause I don't have OHVs in there that kind of thing. Um, but you know, not too far down the road, there's guys that own land and they're building food plots and, and that's pulling deer even off of the uh, national forest land, you know, that I like to hunt on and it's con- congregating deer in that area. And the boundary waters is like the last place we have left to go and hunt them on their own terms. Uh, nothing is being, being manipulated to screw that up. And uh, it's pretty cool. And it, it's not like hunting. You know, I grew up in central Minnesota with farms. You figured out where they bedded. You figured out where they ate. And you tried to intercept them in between or right. get them when they're going there. Uh, the Bondi Waters is not like that. They eat everywhere. Uh, there's, there's food all over the place. They, they're browsing up there. Um, bedding areas, is there like one bedding area they use? Not at all. A lot of it has to do with um, just them surviving. And them surviving might mean that there might be wolves in the area and I might push them out a mile this way, two miles this way, three miles this way. And and uh, and they'll just stay in that area if they're safe. And then if they're not safe and see people or they have wolves or, you know, not enough food, then they'll move from there. And uh, There's just a lot of – it's a really cool place to hunt. There's a lot of – traditional trails they use, uh, trails that have been used for hundreds of years. Uh, during rut, there can be places that have signs that would blow your mind. And, you know, we've had uh, one, one winter, uh, one hunt in the fall, we found a spot that had 50 scrapes on the ground within 200 yards. Wow. And so that would make you want to just sit there. For a week, you know, I mean, that, that's quite the spot. And that's some traditional trails there, too. And we ended up sitting there, and we ended up shooting a big buck there. 
<laughs> but I've been in a lot of situations where I've, I've had good deer sign and sat there for two days and didn't see a thing. And it's just because they're getting moved around. And so I'm real big on sneak hunting. I'm real big on moving and trying to find them because there's just so much land for them to hide in. And if they're not there, they're not there. And, and so I do a lot of paddling and a, a lot of walking. Yeah, so so I'm assuming the deer density is pretty low. Is that is that right? And then what about the, like the age of deer? Do you see a lot of older deer simply because there's not as many hunters, or is that not the case? The deer density is is uh, low. I mean, uh, you know, they guess on that. Um, you know, somewhere between um, one to five deer per square mile is what I normally hear up there. Um, you got to be tough to live up there tough place to live if you see a buck it's big um if they survive up there i mean we've had years up there where we've seen 10 deer you know seven of them were bucks and of the seven five were you know really big bucks big mature bucks wow um we've had you know i mean we always see deer uh i always you know we always tell each other you're gonna have one opportunity and usually, almost every year, we have one opportunity. So I've had years where I've jumped six or eight bucks and, you know, had an opportunity to get a couple shots off. But usually, I'm lucky to get one opportunity to actually get a shot off. <laughs> How do you – that That all sounds about what I expected. And one of the biggest challenges, though, just looking at this from the outside in – is and you alluded to this earlier the fact that in so many other places in whitetail country you know okay they bed here they feed here how do get how do I get in between or how do I you know find a pinch point during the rut and wait for them to cruise by there's different kind of basics to deer hunting to find you know understanding where deer are and where you need to be but in a landscape like this it just seems to your point it seems they could be almost anywhere how do you go about finding deer is there any kind of terrain or habitat type that you've noticed they tend to congregate around more or, or anything that you've used to kind of figure out where your starting point is? Well, when we pick the spot where we deer hunt now and, and we can't tell you where that is, we'd have to kill you. <laughs> of course, uh, I would never when, ask you that. <laughs> when we picked the spot, we, you know, we used topo maps and we looked at, um, you know, just general areas where we thought would hold deer and, um, one of the things we looked at, there was a huge blowdown up there, which blew down a lot of food. And um, we hunt close to the, that blowdown area. And it, there are more deer there than other areas of the Boundary Waters. There are areas of the Boundary Waters where there aren't many deer. Um, and this area here holds quite a few deer. So looking for those irregular but, features. You know, yep. And so I mean, we pray a lot like those eastern trackers you know how blood the benoites you know we pray for snow we we pray for wet we pray for wind and if i can get you know a wet ground and some wind then i i'll just go and and i'll just sneak hunt and try to sneak up to a buck and um, hit habitat that has held deer in the past uh, if i get snow then i will take it a step farther and try to find a good track and and get on it does does bow hunting up there sound like um, a a crazy idea, given the challenges that you've talked to, or do people successfully ever do that? 
So there are people that bow hunt up there. It's crossed my mind. I, I bow hunt uh, a ton around uh, Duluth, Minnesota, and um, that's kind of my one special week that I go up there. And I, since I can use a, a gun, I use a gun. And, uh, you know, we've shot deer at 15 yards. We've shot deer at 30 yards, and we've shot deer at 80 yards. Uh, most of the shots are relatively close. Um, you know, I, I use a scope that's basically designed for jump shooting. It's a two by seven. I uh, wouldn't be afraid to use open sights either. Wouldn't be afraid to go up there with the muzzle loader if the water was open. I'd, I'd go up there with a open sided muzzle loader too. Um, but you can certainly bow hunt up there. The big thing is, uh, just make a good shot. You don't want to be tracking, you know, an animal up there. Uh, it's easy to get lost. You don't have all those reference points to find your way back. A lot of times your reference point is a lake and all of a sudden you find yourself a mile south of that lake and uh, it's pretty tricky getting back to it, you know, and yeah, you can say you have a GPS, but, and I do carry a GPS and I use it, but I still have a compass and I still use that compass to get me back to the general area where my canoe was and where my camp was, Hmm. but there's no road to hit, you know? Yeah, very different. Now you mentioned sometimes you canoe around. How do you do? You I had someone else send me a message or something who said that his buddies just will hop in their canoe for the day and just paddle around the edges or paddle down rivers and hope to just spot one while they're paddling and then make a move in that kind of way. How do you do? You do something like that at all? I've shot uh, deer in my canoe before, uh, not in the Boundary Waters and. Uh, Chippewa National Forest, hunting a river, a zigzaggy river, where when you know it's easy to sneak sneak up to ducks and it's easy to sneak up to deer. Um, paddling around a lake and hoping to bump into a buck. You never know. During the rut, they do dumb things. Um, you know, I've I've heard of it, um, but that's not in general how I hunt. I mean, I pick areas where I know a whole deer, and every year our inventory of good places to hunt increases and uh get up in the morning and play the wind the wind is here these four spots would be good and go to those two spots and if the wind changes you might go to a different spot maybe it's a day where the wind changes and decide to explore another spot um but it's just a lot of alone time which i love being in the woods by myself being in the back country by myself and uh exploring new country and i can i can hunt the whole day never see a deer and come back to camp and just just say wow what a great day yeah Uh, pretty special place you don't see anyone and i to be honest i was super apprehensive about coming on here mark because i've listened to your podcast many times but i don't want to see you up there or anybody else up there in the back country (laughs) um and I, I don't think we will bump into each other. Uh, it's one thing to say you're going to do it. It's another thing to do it. Yeah. Um, and the, you know, it's like I said, I mean, there's a lot of places you can say you like the backcountry and all that. But, you know, in Minnesota, you know, Chippewa National Forest, Superior National Forest, there's a lot of backcountry areas, but there's always a road you can reference. And even if you get totally turned around and lost, you could set up camp for the day and the next morning, you know, you walk north six miles, you're going to hit the road. But in the Boundary Waters, you screw it up. You could be in Canada. <laughs> and then you could hit that other millionaire uh, wilderness up there. And, and, you know, you got a long walk. So, 
uh, it's pretty serious backcountry travel. You better know what you're doing with a GPS and a compass. Um, and I just, that's just something I just love to do. I like to go get lost every single day and find my way out. It's just a way for me to test and improve my skills. Yeah. I, I a hundred percent understand where you're coming from and, and the desire to not want to bump into anyone else. I get that. Um, if I see you up there, I'll make sure to turn the other way and make sure you don't spot me. <laughs> um, but it's to your point, though, it does seem like the kind of experience that you better be prepared for. It's not the kind of place you can just show up and take off and think it's going to be just like driving down to the nearest woodlot and hunting back on your back 40. Um, and it's funny you mentioned that just last night, my buddy who who's going to go on this trip with me, you know, he's been thinking about it and doing all sorts of research and all that. And he texted me. He's like, do you realize how little space is going to be left in a canoe after we load for the week? Dot, dot, dot. Stressing a bit. Probably not going to have a hard bow case, huh? And, and yeah, that seems like the logistics of pulling off something like this have got to be pretty challenging too. How do you, I mean, anything you could add on that Daryl or Matt as far as the logistics of getting everything in and out? Um it seems like that's a trick in itself. So I, we've got to, each, each of us have an outline of the things that we bring. And, you know, we're, we do this trip together. So there's things that Matt brings. There's things that I bring. We've got some mutual things. We've had, we've had canvas wall tents. We've had, um, you know, a stainless stove, uh, wood stove. You know, that whole setup weighed close to 60 pounds. Uh, when I was in my 30s, I just thought nothing of it. And now that we've gotten older, we've lightened things up. Now we've got a we've got a tent that's made out of parachute material, a lot like a speak outside or a kafaru. We have a company in Minnesota called Cook Custom Sewing that made it. And then we've got a titanium uh, stove. The whole setup weighs 20 pounds, so that's pretty cool. Um, and then just, you know, everything is fine-tuned from your socks to the number of underwear you need, uh, how many gloves. And um, you, know, you look at the forecast and tweak it a little bit here and there. But, um, you know, if, if you're going there, I'd be happy to sit on the phone with you and go through my list a little bit and uh, help you out, you know, picking the right things. And we bring some luxury things that we don't have to bring, you know, in the tent. Uh, you know, we have, we have cots, which is nice to get off the ground. Uh, it's also nice to be able to store things under the cot. It makes for a lot more room in your tent. Um, you know, we bring a great meal the first uh, night or two. We actually bring venison steaks the first night, salad and potatoes. And uh, the second night, we do burritos with leftover venison. And then from that point on, we're uh, we're just eating Mountain House, uh, which is fine. I mean, you're so tired at the end of the day that, uh, you know, you eat a Mountain House and you're sleeping by 7.30 at night. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, would you add anything on that front? Well, I, um, you know, we use a pair of canoes, so that increases our, um, you know, uh, ability to get material in and and um, get it out. Uh, hopefully, uh, you know, with with a buck um, in the canoe with you. Uh, I I think uh, you know having two canoes is a little bit safer. Um, Daryl, I think, you know, would agree with that. In fact, I think 
rather than getting a, a big Minnesota three or something like that uh, to carry us in the gear, uh, which would be close. I think Daryl recommended the taking the two solo uh, canoes uh, the first time we went up there. You know, go with wool and make sure that you've got, you know, a dry bag full of uh, extra wool and uh, and shell layers. You don't necessarily know what the weather's going to be like. And you can get into a situation where either because uh, you didn't control, uh, you weren't able to control how much you're uh, sweating, um, uh, or, you know, in a really bad situation, if you were to, to roll the canoe, uh, where you need to be able to get dry um, and get warm really fast. It's, uh, um, you know, tipping a canoe in November uh, in Minnesota, northern Minnesota, is not a cute um, thing to happen. It's, uh, you're taking your life in your hands, and so, yeah, make sure you got all your all your important gear in in dry bags. The canoe thing is 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 a big deal. Um, the water temperature is so cold then. Uh, even in mid October, I think I had heard that that's kind of when you're thinking about going. Yeah, you cannot flip your canoe. You cannot go swimming. If you do, you you might die. So uh, you need to make sure that uh, you know the lake is paddleable. Uh, if you're you know. If you're a good canoer, that's different than if you haven't paddled a lot. I mean, uh, if you if there's three, four footers and you're not a good paddler and you're in a solo canoe, I, I don't know if I'd go out. We've had days where we uh, just hunted on foot because it, the lake was too, you know, just had, there was too much wind. Um, if you get a chance to rent a canoe, my opinion would be the best canoe for um hunting up there a solo canoe is a canoe called the solo plus made by winona and all the outfitters in the ue will have it and uh it's a canoe that you can paddle with two people or it's got a center seat it's got a lot of volume to it and it actually paddles really nice um and then you know the make sure you have two paddles too a lot of people that have broken a paddle or lost a paddle and um, and in a solo, solo boat, make sure you have two paddles. That's great advice. Yeah. Yeah. That extra pass. The other thing, um, you know, I mean, this probably goes without saying, but, uh, um, it's a time of the year, particularly November when, and lately we've had a lot of really abnormally warm, um, hunts, but, that's not always that way. You should really watch your um, uh, long-term weather forecast. And, you know, the night before you go up or the morning of, if you can print out a long-term forecast for what the temperatures and what the wind direction and speeds are likely to be, that's less about hunting than making sure that you know when winds are expected to drop and temperatures are expected to drop because... If you paddle in, um, you know, paddle and portage and paddle again, you are uh, in a situation where if the temp- if the wind speeds drop overnight and the temperatures are in the teens, you could wake up and find that there's ice on the lake in the morning. You can't paddle a uh, solo canoe, um, you know, safely 
uh, even with two people, you know, breaking ice in front, not when you're loaded with gear. So uh, you just have to be careful to make sure you can get out after you've gotten in. That's another important piece of equipment we bring is a weather radio, and we're checking it all the time. And, and this year is a perfect example. We went to Ely on uh, Friday morning and looked at the forecast, and I said to Matt, I said, Matt, the temperature drops two degrees, we're, we're coming out. And we both wanted to go so bad. And by Saturday afternoon, we knew we were, we were coming out in a hurry, and thank God we did because by Tuesday, lakes are freezing up there. Wow. So, so considering this uh, topic of, of climate and temperatures, um, you mentioned, Daryl, that you guys use a tent with a, with a stove. Is that kind of a mandatory thing up there, given how cold the temperatures can get? You, you probably want to have a setup that has a stove and, I guess, also a safety precaution just in case you do tip in. Is that what you guys would recommend? Yeah, I, you know, a couple of reasons. Matt talked about just drying your clothes out. I mean, some there's some days where you just got bad weather and, uh, at the end of the day, you're just wet, and it's not like you've got three different outfits with you. You, you can't carry that much gear, you know. Uh, so you've got to dry that stuff out. And so the wood stove allows you to dry it all out, and we've got ours all rigged up so that we can have clothes hanging all over it and, you know, stoke that baby up at night, and everything's dry in the morning. So uh, it's pretty nice to have the, the tents and the wood stoves, um, just, you know, for safety-wise, survival-wise. Yeah. I mean, I... Opening day this year, I, I was dead set on getting to a spot, you know, probably two miles from where our camp was. And I took off, and I had all the right gear, all dressed in wool. And we had just gotten, like, 10 inches of snow up there, and there was snow on every tree, and everything was just wet. And I got to the first spot that is a great spot, and I was just like, no, I really want to get to that spot. And Long story short, by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I was so wet that I was sitting back at camp drying my stuff out. <laughs> um, you know, it got to a point where I was like, you know, I'm done hunting for the day. Now I'm going to go back and dry my stuff out and make sure that I can hunt tomorrow. So. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely seems like it's the kind of trip that sometimes just comes down to survival. It's, it's a hunting trip, but it's also just a can you can you make it out here? It's not an easy landscape. Uh, very unforgiving, sounds like, which, which is definitely something that makes for one of those types of adventures that are so special too. Um, so I have two more quick logistical questions before we move on. Um, one, what's your recommended way of getting a deer out? Do you guys do you guys like to quarter it up and put it in game bags like you're out west, or what do you do there, Derek? We just drag it out, put it in the canoe, and uh, take pictures the whole way out pretty cool it's like a big celebration coming out it's a ton of work um but we'll drag it right across the portages and uh it's it's a ton of work but it's just a great day man so that was my final question then and that's good to know that that's how you guys are doing it so the portages i gotta imagine with so much gear and so many different things um, I was just curious if you have a certain process to make it as easy as possible or a certain, I don't know, anything you do different or unique to, to handle a portage with, you know, all sorts of hunting gear, rifles, stuff to live in, gear, maybe a deer, food, um, any way of packing things out or, or whatever it is to, to handle those types of, you know, getting from one lake to one lake type situations. Yeah, we, we, we have, you know, great gear, great bags. Um, 
And the one thing we've learned is it's it's better to have things in a bag. You know, it's, yeah, you can grab six things in one hand and six things in the other hand, and it's just hard to balance and get it across the portage like that. So we'll use our bags, our canoe packs, and, um, you know, most of the time on the way in, it's, it's three trips in on each portage. It's not a lot. You know, you just take your time, and, um, and then on the way out, the idea is we're looking at, you know, probably – Three trips out with all of our gear and our boat, and uh, and then get the gear across, um, which is, uh, you know, I mean, if you shoot a buck up there, shoot a buck up there, it's over 200 pounds, so dragging a buck across these portages is, is a ton of work. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't think you'd be crazy to quarter a deer. Uh, yeah. We just have always just drug it out. And, uh, in the canoes and taking pictures and sounds like a heck of an experience that's for sure um but am i am i right in assuming it's all worth it oh yeah <laughs> absolutely <laughs> absolutely it's worth it a- absolutely it's worth it um you know the 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 first the first year uh we well the first year that i hunted up there um hunted up there with daryl and you know, coming out on the morning we were coming out, you got a lot, a lot of work to do, you know, packing up, breaking the camp down, making sure everything's clean, not leaving any junk behind. You know, you got to paddle, you got to unload everything, you know, at the, at the portage, you got to carry everything over the portage, you got to grab your canoe and carry that over the portage, and you got to load it again. Um, and if you, you know, the last step, if you have, um, if you've got a, uh, a doe or a buck to drag over is, is that, and that is the most exhausting leg of any portage. It's absolutely exhausting. But every step of the way you get closer, you know, by the time you get everything back in your vehicle and you, you're driving back, um, that year, you know, um, Daryl's nice enough to, you know, have me, uh, allow me to. Uh, butcher uh, the buck at his place, and with the film, good advice. It still took me a long time to get it done. Uh, get all the meat packaged up, and you know, by the time you're done with that, it's you know, late at night, midnight, maybe. You've had an enormous day, an enormous amount of work, and nonetheless, uh, even if it's the most work you ever put into uh, an outdoor experience, it's, it was still the most fabulous hunting experience I've ever had. And there's some years where the weather, just, it, we can't go. Uh, we've had a few years as my kids were growing up that I I didn't go because I wanted to uh, just spend those young years with my kids in the deer stand. And, and I did it with both of them. My oldest is 20 and my youngest is 14. And now they're old enough that I've told both of them, you guys go hunt and uh, just know that I'm going to be gone for that first week of deer hunting and you know, my little one says, well, when can I go? I said, you can go whenever you want to go. But this is what it's all about. And so whenever you're ready for that, then you can come and, and I'll teach you everything that I know. And I think uh, the little one for sure is going to come someday. I'm not sure when. Um, big one might come too. So they, <laughs> they both ask a lot of questions and have a ton of interest in it. It's just got me over here kind of chomping at the bit 
just <laughs> all the stories of, of I'm, I'm one of those types too that I'm kind of a glutton for punishment I enjoy a good suffer fest so it sounds like um, this is a great combination of so many of my loves um, but but man it's it seems like such a unique deer hunting um, opportunity and, and any kind of outdoor experience it sounds like it'd be pretty incredible there but from a deer hunter perspective too that just seems like one of if not the most unique deer hunting trip you could do in the United States compared to what most other you know deer hunting spots are like or experiences are like so uh, it's just got a, a tremendous amount of appeal to me um, but I could I could probably rant and rave and, and wonder about deer hunting in the boundary waters for for three hours um, but real quick Lucas you I know do a lot of upland hunting out there too and fishing. Can you give us a quick primer on what the upland and fishing is like out there before we uh, move on? But before that, let's take a quick break for a word from our partners at Whitetail Properties. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Justin Mason, a land specialist out of Illinois. And Justin is going to be telling us about what are some of his favorite scouting strategies for this time of year. Hey, my go-to spot at the end of winter has to be kind of those thick bedding sanctuary areas. Um, you know, primarily I'm doing two things late winter, uh, starting to look, you know, for sheds, but then also trying to figure out, you know, if I can nail down specifically more of the deer pattern, travel pattern. So I'll usually go into the kind of the south facing slopes up towards the top of the ridge, find some of that thicker habitat with maybe some locust trees, because oftentimes they'll go to those locust pods and feed on them, uh, or honeysuckle. Anything kind of the thicker, the better, so that I can really dive into and see how they're traveling through it. And, uh, you know, hopefully I can score and pick up a shed. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Justin currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash Mason. That's M-A-S-O-N. Man, I mean, we could talk about the fishing opportunities up there until we're blue in the face. Um, you know, like I mentioned before, I grew up doing, uh, doing, you know, spring opener lake trout trips and, you know, it's the same, the same rules apply that, that Matt and Daryl are talking about. You know, you have situations there where, you know, the water is so cold, the ice is possibly coming out. You have to be extremely prepared. Um, you run into crazy different weather situations. I mean, I've been stuck in camp uh, because of three to four foot rollers for two days on a on one of the larger lakes out there to waiting for ice out to come out. But, um, you know, the, re- the rewards outweigh the risk always up there. And if you're smart about it and you're safe and diligent on the way you're approaching it, um, it, it's always a life-changing experience. Um, again, for me, you know, the, the lake trout trips are always the best and, and getting up there and, and enjoying that situation where there's not too many people up and having fun with your friends. Um, for lake trout, it's, it's, it's just a one-of-a-kind experience. It's a world-class experience, especially when you can get into them. Um, one of the best fish I've ever had as a, uh, you know, shore lunch meal in camp 
I mean, I, as a chef myself, I can say right now that that is probably one of the best meals I've ever had. And my mouth is watering just thinking of it at the moment. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, walleye in June, July are, are just, it's so awesome. The colors on those fish are so much different. Again, you know, referencing back to just the way the ecosystem up there is, is up there. It's just amazing. Um, you know, you have amazing uh, pike fishing opportunities, depending upon how you're approached. I mean, fly fishermen, you know, this is a great opportunity for people to go up there. And it's something that I just got into, too, and it's so much fun. Um, I just took my dad last year on a really cool smallmouth bass um, trip just as the actual uh, spawning was happening. And we got into him, and it was so awesome. We were trying to outrun thunderstorms. Uh, we sat there, and the fish were so active. We caught about 60 fish in about three hours. Jeez. To camp out on on a site just to wait out the storm and got back, and we were battling as we're paddling through as the storm was coming back. And got back to camp and threw out some bobber sets with leeches as we were making dinner and caught walleye for the next morning. Um the fishing opportunities up there are bar none the best the best experience I've ever had freshwater fishing. Um, rough grouse hunting, that's something a little bit newer to me. I've been doing it for the last handful of years. Uh, we've, you know, at the campaign, we've been doing some really awesome, you know, media journalist trips where we're bringing people up, you know, field and stream and, uh, lots of different, you know, writers, outdoor news. And we had a really cool trip in October where we went up to this lake called Rose Lake up the Gunflint side, which is the eastern side of the BWCA. And, you know, we went out and these guys were fly fishing for pike and smallmouth bass and awesome walk. Again, referencing what uh, Daryl was saying earlier about the border route trail and going on a three, four mile hike and, shooting a couple birds and bringing them back for dinner. Um, you know, rough grouse up there is amazing. And I'm, I'm actually come to think of it, you know, the first time, one of the first times I met Daryl, um, we were speaking at a, uh, event that Sportsman for the Bounty Waters was having up in Duluth. And, you know, he was just talking about rough grouse hunting up there too. And it's just an amazing, amazing opportunity for that and you you know you can go up and do a an awesome casting blast up there in october as well so you get up and do some you know late season smallmouth bass and northern pike and put a couple rough grouse in the pan and you're pretty much good to go on a great cool night without the bugs yeah i mean i can't even begin to describe the experiences up there but uh you know what I've always said to people is you won't know until you get up there yourself. Yeah. yeah if, I, if I could, if I could add to what Lucas is saying in my twenties, that's kind of how I, I really started exploring the backcountry of the Bonner waters is grouse hunting. And, and I did have a dog, but uh, the grouse are a lot like the deer. I mean, they do not expect to see human beings. Uh, you'll mm-hmm. rarely flush a grouse. Uh, they're, you know, once they figure out it's a human being, then you might flush it, but they just don't expect to see people. And, you know, you're sneak hunting deer up there. They don't expect a person to come walking through the woods. So 
can you sneak, you know, 15, 20 yards from a deer? You can. Uh, they're not used to seeing people up there. And then when they do see you, they're gone. Um, but the grouse are a lot the same way. And it, there's a lot, there are a lot of grouse up there. And it, it's a great place to go grouse hunting. Yeah, it, it, re- it really is. And, you know, you don't want to say an untouched landscape, but, you know, it, it has a minimal footprint that gives you so many amazing opportunities to experience uh, wonderful fishing and hunting opportunities. So um, I'm just happy for every experience I've ever had up there and, you know, grateful for the people I've brought up and grateful for the people that I know that, that care about it as much as I do. Just hearing you guys talk about all this, I've already, I'm already sitting here thinking to myself, is there any way I can get a summer trip in too? <laughs> it sounds like there's just, um, there's no shortage of, of reasons to get out there and check this place out. Um, uh, an October trip might not be enough, but I think, I think we've very clearly established that this is a, a special place and, and uh, unique experiences can be had there that I'm. I'm really excited to, to see and, and feel myself, but the whole reason why this whole area really came to my attention though, was because it's a place that's at risk. Um, and Matt, you, you did, you touched on this a little bit towards the beginning. Um, but I'd love for you to really dive in a little bit deeper for us and wh- what's going on with the boundary waters. What's the history of, of, of why people first started getting concerned about some things going on. I think it was maybe in 2014 or 15 where some things start, some concerns were being raised. And can you walk us through what's happened and, and then where do we stand most recently with some changes that were announced at the end of 2017? The, uh, the big threat to this place, which is a, a place defined by water and a place that every American equally owns, um, is from sulfide ore copper mining. And uh, it's very, very different from the mining that Minnesotans are familiar with, which is uh, iron mining, taconite mining. Um, sulfide ore copper mining is uh, a class of hard rock mining, and it has um, a, a horrible record of polluting. And it's uh, <clears throat> the pollution we're talking about is heavy metals like arsenic, cadmium, mercury, um, and uh, uh, and because the low-grade ore that you know now uh, we have the the mining industry has uh, technology to uh, to mine these low-grade deposits, um, they just make the mines bigger and they operate on slimmer margins. Um, there's interest in, in mining, uh, a very large, very, very low grade, um, deposit, it's actually a string of four little deposits that are right alongside and underneath uh, the South Quishley River and, uh, Birch Lake, which are two water bodies just outside of the wilderness boundary, but that flow, uh, the water from there flows into the into the wilderness, and these um, these deposits, four of them, two of them would be uh, surface mines, open pit mines, and two of them would be uh, deeper than that, um, underground. Um, there'd be a couple square miles of surface uh, infrastructure for processing the ore, 
um, storing all the materials that they would use, various uh, um, you know, energy uh, infrastructure, roads, pipelines, and then uh, there'd be you know an enormous tailing space, and it would be well, they've got seven thousand acres locked up now that would provide space for the tailing space, and so um, you know that's more than ten square miles. So, so this is um, it's a very real threat. Uh, the company at issue is the Chilean copper mining company. It's the eighth or ninth largest in, you know, copper mining company in the world. Um, and it's called Antofagasta. Uh, they have a record as reported in, you know, the newspapers and as, you know, prosecuted in Chile of water pollution down there, even though where their mines are uh, in the high desert, down there, one of the driest regions on the planet, um, there's very, very little water. Even there, they managed to pollute water. And uh, that company, Antofagasta, bought up and now completely controls two companies that uh, uh, one called Twin Metals, the other called Franconia Minerals. And those two companies, you know, have this... uh, plan um, to, to build um, a series of, you know, uh, four mines. Uh, and given the track record that we've seen, you know, even with modern mines in the, in the United States, um, they pollute. So it's a very, very real threat. And what we're uh, working to do is to uh, first prevent the mining companies from getting uh, expired leases renewed. I can talk about that in a little bit because the leases say in, in the terms of them uh, that they convey the right to mine. Um, the second thing we're trying to do is to make sure that uh, the federal lands just outside of the wilderness boundary, but in the area that drains into the wilderness, that those lands are put off limits to any new mineral leasing for 20 years. We want a 20-year timeout, uh, and if we get that, um, then we will take the fight to Congress and ask Congress to pass a law permanently protecting those federal lands in that watershed. So uh, the current position we're in is uh, one where the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management um, are asking for input. We've got a comment period that closes next Wednesday, the 28th of February. Um, and Sportsman for the Boundary Waters has a petition up on our website, and we ask everybody to sign that petition. That's the first thing that people can do to help. Express support for putting these lands off limits uh, for 20 years. Um, Express support for continuing the study of the proposal, you know, whether this is the right or the wrong place, this water-rich environment, whether it's the right or the wrong place for the most polluting type of mining in the country. Um, and uh, after you've signed the petition, call your uh, U.S. senators and call your uh, U.S. Uh, your uh, House member, your representative, congressman, and uh, tell them that you want a flagship wilderness area on national forest lands that we all own together uh, protected. The only way given the track record of this industry, the only way to protect this area is to 
put those lands off limits to mining for 20 years. So that's the fight. It's a worthy cause, a worthy goal, and um, we definitely need your listeners uh, to take these uh, relatively small actions and speak up and and support the cause. So, so let me play devil's advocate here. Let's say I'm a I'm a guy or girl who, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm a guy or girl here who says there are millions of acres of public land up in northern Minnesota. Um, I believe that you know, there's nothing wrong with resource extraction on some of our public lands. Um, why are you guys making such a big deal about just four little mining leases um, in this area? Um, so what, if someone's saying that to you, I'm curious what mm-hmm. your re- reply would be. And then also help us understand what if this happens? What if the leases get approved? What if Twin Metals goes in here and makes these mines, um, starts going through these processes? What's the what's the impact on the Boundary Waters, sure. on the fit, hunting and fishing? I mean, what's the actual thing at stake here? Sure, sure. Well, so um, I don't have a problem with with resource extraction. Um, you know, I I went to forestry school. Uh, right now, a lot of the lands that are at issue here, they are, um, it, you know, it's working forest. Uh, it provides habitat uh and you know the forest service uh manages it for a variety of uses and timber harvest is one of those uses this proposal to put the land off limits to sulfide or copper mining doesn't it doesn't affect that it'd still be logging so it's not really about resource extraction that's the first thing i would say second i would say that with regard to minnesota's uh you know number one mining activity, iron mining, taconite mining, um, this withdrawal doesn't affect that. It doesn't stop any of the taconite mines because those taconite mines, iron mines, are in, they're in other locations digging other ore. Um, and uh, so that's really important to get across. Um, finally, I would say that, uh, you know, <clears throat> There is this idea that, and the mining industry takes advantage of this in pretty much every state where they try to get a mine in, where they talk about how every state's got the best environmental protection measures and laws in the nation. And they say, you know, we can we can meet those laws. Well, at the same time, they're often at the state legislature trying to roll back the laws they don't like. So they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. The other thing is mining companies exist for one reason return a profit, the greatest profit that they can to their shareholders uh, and to leave all the risks, long-term risks of pollution uh, with the hole in the ground that they walk away from when they're done. That's what they do. They uh, they sing their swan song when they try to, to woo communities to let them come in and mine, and they don't, they don't walk into these communities. They don't walk into the city hall uh, you know, and say, we'd like to come here, we'd like to take away the wealth uh, and send it to our boardroom, uh, and we'd like to leave you with ruined landscape and polluted water that's going to last for 200 years. That's not what they say. You know, they, they tell a very different story. But if you go and look at communities that used to be uh, major mining communities, they're, they're 
Libby, Montana, and, and other places. They're, they are, um, while they have so many uh, great attributes, one of them is, is not lots of beautiful, uh, you know, lands and clean water. Um, that's taken away. When you, when you start talking about uh, hard rock mining, sulfide or copper mining, that's taken away. So what would happen if they get in? Here's what would happen. The, the sulfide or copper, uh, the sulfide copper ore that they dig up, very, very low grade ore, 99.5% of that is going to stay um, you know, in the region. And, uh, but it's not going to be the big block of bedrock it once was, which didn't pollute. Bedrock really doesn't pollute because it weathers so slowly. It takes millennia. It takes ages, ages to, to weather. And so it doesn't pollute. But when you grind that, you know, amount of rock up, you know, amount of, amount of rock many times bigger than the U.S. Bank Stadium where the, world, where the, uh, uh, where the Super Bowl was just played, um, many, many times bigger. You grind that up to the fineness of face powder. You expose all of that rock to air and water, and the sulfides in it convert to sulfuric acid. And that sulfuric acid leaches down through that through that tailings, through that waste rack, and leaches out the heavy metals that I talked about earlier, which are neurotoxins. They get into the fish, they get into the water, um, and if if you eat fish, they're going to get into you. Mercury is a potent neurotoxin, and it does damage to the developing brains of, of uh, fetuses and young children, uh, nursing children and, and kids in their grade school years, and it, it reduces their IQ. And if you have a reduced IQ, you've got a reduced total earning capacity for your life. This is not just about, you know, this is not some little thing. It's uh, We're talking about uh, centuries, and I don't say that lightly. 200 to 500 years minimum of pollution would come from these sites. And it flows, it would flow right into the heart of the boundary. Um, so that, you know, that really would do grievous damage to uh, what is the essence of the boundary waters, and that's clean water. But luckily, luckily we don't have to go this route because there are lots of places to mine copper. Copper is copper is copper. You can mine it anywhere, but there's only one boundary water. People should keep that in mind. If you're in favor of resource extraction, that doesn't mean you have to, you know, mine it everywhere, right? So, yeah, that's that, what I would say. That's that's always something that I that I think about a lot too. Um, being against something like this doesn't mean that you're taking some full sweep against all mining or logging or drilling or whatever type of resource extraction at at uh, question might be um but as a hunter as an angler as a as a hiker or a paddler someone who who understands these places and appreciates these places i think it's pretty fair to say um at least from my perspective that there can't we have some of these places that are too special to risk some of these things can't we find some areas that we can say all right you know this is a place where maybe this isn't the right use maybe this is maybe the highest use here is is wildlife habitat and recreation and and, and a quiet space um to your point there are there are plenty of places uh where you can mine copper or where you can do x y or z i think i remember and i someone's going to email me and tell me i'm wrong on this but i believe the number i saw was that 90 percent of our federal public lands are open to resource extraction, et cetera, et cetera. So 
maybe it's okay that we can have a little buffer strip here around one of the most special places that we say, no, this we need to be a little extra careful here. Um, that doesn't seem so outrageous to me, at least, um, given... Such no, it's not right. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's not outrageous. I mean, we're lucky enough to have... Uh, you know, inherited this wonderful place. You know, it would be awfully wonderful if we were able to hand it down to our kids and grandkids in the same condition that we got. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're, the country is, uh, you know, we've got a strong country, uh, a wealthy country, and we can afford, um, to borrow from somebody else who talked about this issue, we can afford to protect boundary waters. Lucas, uh, would you add anything on this, um, given that you, you're obviously very active with this campaign as well? No, absolutely. Everything that uh, you know Matt said is is completely on point, and it is very important that we take all measures that we can to you know protect this world class hunting and fishing destination. You know, there is no reason these companies should be taking the measures that they are to extract the minerals that they're looking to do. Um, we only have a certain amount of areas here in, in this nation that, you know, support um, the opportunities that we have, especially the public lands that we have. And, you know, that was referenced earlier, um, east of the Rockies and north of, of the Everglades, this is the largest and most visited wilderness in the nation. So for future generations, this is one of the most important areas that we have that's been set aside and started uh, initially by Teddy Roosevelt. So we need to make sure that we do everything that we can and, and we do our due diligence to make sure that this exists for future generations to experience and also, also to, uh, support the economic driver that the space is in northeastern Minnesota because it really is. And I mean, it's a trickle down effect. You know, something happens where there is pollution from this type of mining, which is inevitable. And it will affect companies from local to large. It will affect the flora and fauna all the way from micro to macro. And we have a situation here where we need to make sure that we protect something that is so important to the future of everybody here in the U S. So yeah, I could not agree more with anything that Matt just said, but you know, everybody should say, you know, should, should sign a petition and say, yes, protect this area, put it off limits to mining uh, for 20 years. Um, it's the wrong place for qualified or compromise. So that sounds like number one action item. The easiest action item is go sign this petition, make your voice heard, at least in that way, that there are a lot of sportsmen mm-hmm. and women who, who support this place. And, and I would say, even if you haven't been to this, to this area yet, or, or have, or sorry, even if you haven't been or don't even plan to, it's a place that I think, um, that we as a hunting and fishing community should stand up for simply because of the fact that it offers opportunities, that it offers the potential for something. And having a few places like that left, at least in my opinion, is is something worth having and something worth um, standing up for. So sign the petition. Um, 
And, and Matt, what would be your, your number two and number three actions? I think you mentioned placing a phone call or email to your representatives. Was that number two? Yeah, I would, I would say the number two is to, is to call uh, both of your U.S. senators, whatever state you're from, and tell them that uh, uh, the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness is Minnesota's Yellowstone and that they want to see it protected. Uh, that message will get through uh, to people. And um, the third thing would be to more or less do the same thing with your with your um, member of the U.S. House, your congressman or woman. Um, well, doesn't take anybody more than ten minutes to check all three of those boxes off, and um, you'd be doing a, a great service. Not just you know in case you want to use it uh, in the future. Uh, enjoy it in the future, but if you've got kids or if you support the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts, and the Edge of the Boundary Waters supports the only wilderness base camp for the Girl Scouts in America. Uh, and it supports one of the few national high adventure camps uh, for the Boy Scouts, uh, the Summers uh, base camp for the Boy Scouts. So, you know, even if you don't think you're going to go. You may know, um, uh, you know, a, a kid in the Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts, and and they should have a chance to experience this place uh, in its prime. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm excited to to get my own firsthand experience um, with this place this fall. And I think anyone listening, I, I got to believe a lot of people listening have, have probably been intrigued to, to maybe someday put this on their bucket list and experience it too. So it seems pretty clearly we've got our, our action orders. If if we want to keep this place uh, as special and pristine as it is right now, there's a few easy actions that we can take. And, and I'll certainly be doing that uh, probably tonight, right after we finish this conversation. And I'd encourage anyone else listening to, to do the same thing. Um, I guess real quick. If we have any quick final thoughts, uh, Daryl, do you have any final things you want to leave us with before we wrap it up? I had one other hunting story that I want, wanted to tell you just to get you fired up about going there. <laughs> Perfect. So one year I shot a big buck with my bull and uh, I told Matt, I said, yeah, I'm just going to bring my dog and grouse hunt. And he said, no, you can hunt on my tag. And I said, all right, well, you know, how big does the deer have to be if I fill your tag? He said, you know, 10 points. So, uh, it was a couple days into the hunt and it was kind of sleeting out and, uh, I found a log to sit on and I trimmed out this white spruce tree and sitting on the log and it was just a, a beautiful afternoon and grunted a couple times and kept sitting there and all of a sudden I, I saw this nice buck. It was an eight pointer, real white rack, beautiful buck, but it was eight points. And it walked off in front of me and kind of got into a, a bunch of spruce trees and I couldn't see it. And I thought, well, I'm going to have some fun with it. So I grunted at it to see if I could get it to come back. And sure enough, it came back. And keep in mind, I'm sitting on the ground underneath this white spruce tree. It never saw me. And it came back and then it moseyed back into the spruce trees again. And so I thought, I'm going to grunt one more time just to see if I can bring it back one more time. So I grunted. Ten seconds later, one of the loudest, deepest grunts I'd ever heard in my whole life was right behind me. I turned around, 
and over my right shoulder was the biggest buck I'd ever seen in my whole life. Dark face, dark rack, uh, 15 yards away from me looking right at me. And we just stared at each other. I couldn't make a shot because I had to turn completely around. I'm right-handed, and I would have to stand up to do that. And uh, just sat and stared at it. And finally, after about two minutes of staring at it, I decided to go for it, and I stood up and tried to make the shot, and I couldn't make the shot. Mm. But Matt still to this day laughs at me because I, from that point on, I carry a 44 Magnum with me <laughs> in case I'm ever in and have to make that shot at that buck. Wow. That is pretty cool. He was a, he was a beast. And I got to believe that big, big, dark, big-bodied northern Minnesota buck uh, puts, a lot of, uh, puts a lot of deer across the country to shame as far as just pure mystique, uh, I'd have to believe. That one still haunts me. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, yes, you were right. That one definitely did get me pumped. Uh, I can't wait to get out there now. Uh, Lucas, any, any final parting words for you? Yeah, actually. I mean, I have a story too. I'd like to tell, um, one of the first years that I went up and of course, like I mentioned earlier that my dad introduced me to the BWCA, we were on a lake called, uh, Tuscarora, which is up on the, uh, Gunflint side and out on our normal camp and, we knew there was a snowstorm coming in and we were prepared and, you know, ready for the next morning, knowing that we were going to be catching some fish in the middle of the night. We saw a canoe coming from across the lake and we were wondering where they were going. Their original destination was going to an Island that was about a quarter of a mile away from where our uh, camp was at the moment. And it was a father and son, and they were ill-prepared. They came over. We lit a fire for them and uh, fried up some lake trout and had them stay with us, had them over to their camp that they were originally going to go to on that island that their original destination was. Where I'm going with it is, is just like we talked about, you know, you got to just make sure you're prepared. Um they learned a lesson, but I've been in contact with them and they've gone back up every year and it's been a really cool experience and they're really awesome people. That's great. And a great reminder too of, uh, of how easily things could go wrong if you, if you weren't prepared. I imagine they would have had a, a much less enjoyable night if you guys hadn't been there, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that was, you know, kind of the foundation of the way I look at going up there on trips now too. So that's awesome. Well then, um, Matt, any final words for you? you? You've shared a lot with us on the policy standpoint. I don't know if you, if you have anything else uh, you'd like to share or not. I guess I'd just point out that, um, you know, you mentioned that boundary waters is a very accessible place. Um, and, uh, Lucas has mentioned that it's the most visited wilderness in the country. And, uh, you know, pretty much any night, well, not pretty much, any night spent in the Boundary Waters is a backcountry night. Um, but because, you know, because the paddling 
because you're paddling and because the the water carries the weight of all your gear, except on the portages, um, it is a very accessible place, at least during, you know, the summer months. Um, it's accessible to a parent or parents who want to take young kids in. It's doable. You can do it. Uh, you'll have a great time. Um, I have seen young parents with a, a, a newborn baby in the Boundary Waters. It's actually doable. There are things that you could do there that you can't do on a long backpacking trip out west. And uh, I think partly it's the beauty of the place, the ability, depending on your time of the year, to get out and really experience some solitude, particularly early and late seasons. That makes it such an attraction to so many people. And we've talked about hunting and fishing and some of the policy questions, but for a lot of people uh, in northeastern Minnesota, the Boundary Waters is one of the reasons uh, that they live there. It's an important place, uh, you know, to the to the culture. Uh, of Minnesota and to the population in northeastern Minnesota. And uh, uh, it, it drives the economy in a way, um, you know, that's, uh, it, it includes, but it's bigger than the, the hunting and fishing and, and recreation. So I, I, guess, I guess that's it. All right, perfect. Well, I'll, I'll tell you one thing, if if nothing else has been achieved here tonight, at the minimum, uh, you guys definitely did a really good job of getting me fired up. I'm ready, I'm ready to get out there, and um, probably, probably a few, a few folks listening are too, so I guess, I guess I gotta say though, I, I hope for Daryl's sake that no one listening, that none of you guys go out there, and uh, I don't want to see you out there either, so <laughs> in all seriousness though, um, this has been just really interesting. It's neat to get insight into a very different kind of place than um, where some of us spend our time hunting and uh, you know all the other things that we love to do: fishing, camping, paddling. It seems that this is just uh, just top of the top of the line as far as what you can what you can get back into. So I'm excited to see it. I appreciate you guys sharing with us your experiences, your insights, um, helping us better understand what's happening with this place and, and why it's at risk and, and what we can do about it. So this has been very helpful, very interesting and appreciate you guys being a part. All right, folks. And that is going to do it for this episode. Um, that said, I appreciate you listening. And as I said earlier, I think this is an opportunity for us as a hunting community here to step up and make a difference for a place that maybe we personally won't, but a lot of people go to to enjoy, whether it be deer hunting or fishing or canoeing or kayaking or camping. You know, it's a special place. It's close to a lot of us deer hunters here in the Midwest, and um, we can make an impact. So here's what I would just reiterate. As Matt mentioned, please, if you can, take a second to sign those petitions he mentioned. I have them both linked on the blog post for this. So if you go to wiredhunt.com, click on the blog post for this podcast episode, you're going to see the petition there linked for Sportsman for the Boundary Waters, or you can go to sportsmanfortheboundarywaters.org and sign right there. 
And the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers organization also has a petition they're working on. So if you go to the link on my website, you can sign that as well. Um, I'm going to be posting about this on Instagram. So if you want to help out there, you can go on Instagram and repost that to your own page. Share the link to these petitions there. I'm going to be tweeting about this today and over the course of the next few days. Retweet that. Share that around. And then if you have the time, make a call to your senators. Make a call to your representatives. It's a quick way that you can stand up for one specific place. And I think if we if we can come together as a group and help in this instance, maybe six months from now there's somewhere else. It's maybe closer to you. And we can all rally around that issue. And maybe a few months after that, there's going to be something else. And we're going to stand up for that too. That's that's what I hope for this community that we've built here with Wired to Hunt is not only do we care about our own personal deer hunting behind our house or in our little neck of the woods. Not only do we want to fill the freezer, not only do we want to kill a big mature buck, um, but we also want to stand up for these places where we can hunt, where we can fish, where we can go adventure. Um, We enjoy these places, so I think because of that, we also have an obligation to try to speak up for them too. At least that's the way I see it, and um, I'm trying to to do my best to, to show that example, and maybe we can all do that together. So that's the end of my sermon here today. I appreciate you guys uh, hanging on for that and, and tuning in. And finally, I guess we'll just wrap it up with our final thank you to our partners who do make all of this possible. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, the Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And of course, and again, Thank you all. I appreciate you being listeners. I appreciate you being supporters of these types of causes. I appreciate you being just genuinely good people. Um, this Wired Hunt community is is awesome. You guys are the best. I appreciate you. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.